Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the September 17, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, as director of the Center for Hydrometeorology and Remote Sensing and professor of Civil Environmental Engineering Earth System Science Department's UCI, Professor Sarushian offers the finer points behind what we all witnessed as Hurricane Dorian blew toward the East Coast. We can geek out with him, his center, and hope for the best with those weather forks and, oh, for ourselves in the future. In the second segment is South Coast Repertory's new artistic director, David Ivers, at the beginning of this year's season. We'll be right back after a very short station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is Professor Sarush Sarushian taking up the head-scratcher that we all witnessed as Hurricane Dorian pummeled the Bahamas and blew toward the East Coast earlier this month. As director of the Center for Hydrometeorology and Remote Sensing and distinguished professor of civil and environmental engineering and earth system science departments at UCI, Dr. Sarushian is our man. Previous to his 2003 appointment at UCI, he was on the University of Arizona faculty. His areas of expertise are hydrometeorology, water resources systems, climate studies, and application of remote sensing to earth system science problems. He focuses on the hydrologic cycle and water resources issues of arid and semi-arid zones and consults on surface hydrology and urban flooding. Dr. Sarushians served with the United States National Academy of Engineering, the International Academy of Astronautics, American Association for the Advancement of Science and Atmospheric and Hydrospheric Sciences, American Geophysical Union, American Meteorology Society, International Water Resources Association, the World Climate Research Program, the Hydrology Commission for the World Meteorological Association, NOAA Science Advisory Board at its first year, in fact, which is what is important, the institutional perspective, which we'll be tapping into today. Dr. Sarushian's other committees include those with NASA, Department of Energy, United States Department of Agriculture, National Science Foundation, EPA, UNESCO, and the National Research Council Space Study Board and the Water Science and Technology Board. He's testified before Congress about Earth observations from space and water resources issues. His honors are extensive internationally as well as in his own classroom. I will name but a few. They are the Chinese Academy of Sciences Einstein Professorship, American Geophysical Union Robert E. Horton Medalist, Eagleson Lectureship, Consortium of Universities for the Advancement of Hydrologic Science, the fourth Prince Sultan bin Abdulaziz International Prize for Water Resources Management and Protection, and a NASA Distinguished Public Service Medal, the Robert E. Horton Memorial Lectureship, American Meteorological Society, and the William Nordberg Memorial Lecture at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. UNESCO Award and the University of Arizona Center for Sustainability. I'm going to I'm going to stop there, <laughs> but uh, but no, I do want, no. I should mention also the American Meteorological Society recognized Dr. Sarushian quote 
for bridging the interdisciplinary gap between hydrology, meteorology, and remote sensing, end of quote. And the outstanding professor in the Henry Samueli School of Engineering by several UCI classes. He's been an honorary professor at the Beijing Normal University, China, and associate fellow at TWAS, the Academy of Sciences for Developing Countries in Trieste, Italy. He completed his Bachelor's of Science at California Polytechnic San Luis Obispo, his Master's of Science at UCLA, his Operations Research and a Systems Engineering degree in Mechanical Engineering, PhD at UCLA. He comes to us today from Irvine. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Sarusian. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you very much for the humbling introduction. Uh, I don't deserve all the credits that you gave me, but anyhow, I take it. Thank you so much. Maybe it's a reason for me to go to my dean and ask for a salary raise. Okay, and then you can <laughs> mention you've appeared on the August platform of the KUCI station. So, well, Of course I will, yes, indeed. And thank you very much uh, for the uh, invitation to join your program, well, uh, KUCI-UCI. Uh, which, of course, is uh, dear uh, to most of us who, of course, work at UCI. Well, thank you. Well, considering, Dr. Sarushin, your extensive background serving in various capacities with these agencies I've mentioned, what did you hear as the path of Hurricane Dorian predictions began from the National Weather Service, the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, it's also called for short, and then coming from the White House and the immediate local National Weather Service's correction. What were you hearing as that drama was ensuing between all those institutions? Sure, thank you. Of course, as someone interested in, you know, weather phenomena especially on the shorter timescales of hours to maybe days and weeks, uh, which hurricanes fall into the, that category. Myself and my group at the CHRS, let me abbreviate Center for Hydrometeorology and Remote Sensing, I call it CHRS, we kind of follow all these uh, rapidly evolving systems because the contribution we make to the field is through uh, advanced machine learning tools uh, we essentially process satellite information and obtain estimates of precipitation rainfall globally. And that is something that anytime a hurricane or something evolves, we kind of follow it or we assign it to a student to try to see how it moves. But we don't predict. We just look at the output of the hurricane in terms of amount of rainfall. But we have features built into our website, which is called iRain, that allows you to put it in motion and see how the system moves. So for that reason, we kind of follow these things. And I was myself, when it was uh, still moving towards the east coast of the uh, U.S. over the Bahamas territories, I was actually at the NSF uh, evaluation program of a center in Vermont. Oh, my goodness. So we were following it there with some of the colleagues who were also at the... So... In a way, uh, yes, we saw how it was evolving, but in terms of the issues with respect to maybe the conversations that the White House and President had, it came to light a little later. I was traveling, I guess I missed some of that excitement that was originally created and then the questions that were raised. So that's the extent of 
my knowing about the issues, but in terms of following the storms, we were doing it. In fact, a few people who were on the review team happened to be from that region, North Carolina and South Carolina, which they were very close to of the Dorian's path. And so therefore the, we were talking about their families and what they were doing. But hopefully by the time we were done, it had passed over the area. And uh, they only had winds, uh, so it wasn't that bad with precipitation, of course, but no damage. Well, I guess what you're alluding to is you are all about the granular detail and the kind of dynamics between the institutions was maybe a a bit of an affront to the fine-tuning that you always traffic in yourself. That's correct. You know, of course... Over the years, uh, I've had the fortune of not only working with NASA and uh, because we do a lot of work with satellites and remote sensing, but also with NOAA. Right. You kindly mentioned I've had different roles in the way of advisory committees, etc. With NOAA and the Weather Service, I've had cooperative agreements with NOAA for almost 30 years, uh, models related to flood forecasting. So, and I'm quite an active member of the American Meteorological Society where most of these colleagues from NOAA participate. So for that reason, I'm quite involved and acquainted with what they do and obviously have a lot of respect for the ability of what they do and they produce in terms of information. Maybe that kind of explains that, yes, we are engaged and we follow, and we are collaborating with these agencies as we speak. Well, could you just talk briefly about the the importance of getting the best possible information out to the public agencies and the public itself in real time, especially? Yes. Uh, so there are two aspects that have become of interest to the public. One is at the climate scale, right. which we hear about sea level rise, the, you know, uh, the global warming and implications on regional climate or water resources. That's a different time scale, which, of course, UCI's scientists and air systems and our own department and my center are involved with. Yes. In fact, we produce some data for the climate scale that is heavily used. But the other aspect of it is what we call at the weather scale, or let's say anytime there's a hurricane or there's a big system uh, this time of year where it produces tornadoes in the central U.S., those are the maybe fast and rapidly evolving systems. And there are different parts of National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration that try to address these things. And the experts are hired in order to provide the best possible information for the public and decision makers, emergency managers, in order to be able to prepare and deal with these issues. So in the case of hurricanes, you know, there is, of course, the Hurricane Center in Florida. They have some of the best computer systems and tools. But central to all their abilities to project the direction of some of these major storms is numerical weather prediction models. Oh, that's Uh, you. Not really, not us, because those are very extensive models that are really developed and uh, improved at major centers. 
but you're but that, you're remote sensing though. Pardon me for no, talking about remote sensing. We, that contributes. Those are sort of that's data points that they use. Right, it does. But those numerical uh, prediction models, the data is provided uh, through various things. You know, even the aircrafts that fly through the eyes of the hurricane. Right. You know, pick up the winds. They do radio, a lot of radio sounds, and of course, satellites these days provide the different category of information. Okay. They're all fed into these numerical weather prediction models, and the U.S. has a number of them run by the Weather Service and the Hurricane Center. Europeans have the European mid-range weather forecast model, you know, and Hadley in the U.K. There's quite a few different countries are in the game. And in fact, these days you don't rely on one model and you get the projections from all numerical weather prediction models that are run around the clock at, at the various centers throughout the world, but they share the information. And that's why anytime you look at CNN or your favorite station, any of them that are giving up-to-date information about any of these evolving systems, the weather, our favorite weather person goes and explains, and you see all these little spaghetti lines that Correct. they put on the map, and they say, well, this is the way the models are seeing it, and some of them maybe go to this direction or that, and eventually they try to narrow the, the uncertainty level and give a, a, a maybe narrower band of where this, maybe the eye of a system is going to pass. It's a little, you would think it's easier with hurricanes, um, because it's at the larger scale, they look at all the lows and the high-pressure systems, how they influence the direction of this major weather system that, you know, from the eye, the radius could be maybe hundreds of kilometers, depending upon the size and the power of these things. So that's really what numerical weather prediction models provide. So looking at that, though, I mean, the sophistication, the range of inputs and all that, it must make, I mean, I was really trying not to go there at all in this interview, but I, I guess I'm sort of necessitated to look at the unwieldy irony of all the data, the sophistication versus one lousy Sharpie. Yeah, so, you know, honestly, um, you know, one could only say that, you know, one can be amazed why the information, updated information was not provided uh, to the president and the White House, or if it was, they didn't really necessarily look at the updated information. It didn't even take much. You know, you would turn on the TV, you would see uh, CNN or uh, any of the weather channels, they would give you <laughs> up to date because they update these forecasts pretty much every few hours. And if the time of the interview they had looked at one of those, they probably would have seen a different scenario. And why it was presented the way it was, I, it's, it's anyone's guess. I don't know. Well, I, th I think there's been a lot of guessing. It's been a bit of a parlor game. And I yeah. want to take it out of the parlor and get back in the lab with you here and talk about, though, what the impact of those crude sorts of uh, forcings of uh, reality, what, what impact that has on the longer term with the credibility and with the kind of leadership that sure. the acting director, Neil Jacobs, was sort of positioned to have to offer. Yeah, I can't comment on that because I didn't listen to his speech, although I read uh, the 
presentation by uh, Louis Louis Uccellini, who is the head of the Weather Service. Right. And I don't think that he's an appointee. He's, he's a government career employee, but the head of the Weather Service. He also addressed the same conference, and his remarks are posted. You can look at it, and you know he he had to be uh, complimentary of all the work and the hard work that people do right so the weather service has the responsibility of these shorter term forecasts and as such they have a responsibility and we as a public look to what they tell us Uh, you know this is of course a hurricane uh, but you know in the central u.s time you see tornadoes people rely on the severe storm center in oklahoma which is part of the NOAA. Uh, they produce information based on the radar system, satellite data system, and the models. And uh, it's remarkable in the past 15 years or so, when a hurricane would start, it would be a very short-lived but devastating winds and, uh, you know, uh, destructive powers. And they didn't have much warning. Uh, You know, there were sirens, but you had only maybe 90 seconds or so to find a place to keep your family safe. And that's why, of course, a lot of people in Oklahoma and others have a, a underground maybe shelter to, uh, to keep them safe. But now that technology has also advanced. Okay. And now it's maybe 10, 12 minutes notice okay, that they tornado. tell you to get out. So this is where science meets essentially uh, emergency management. So fire departments, police departments, they all rely on this kind of information, as well as the public. You know, we have to listen to them, our radios on, and say, hey, go to a shelter because this region of Oklahoma City is going to be hit by some tornadoes tonight. Uh, so this is a major responsibility. So these yes. people put their heart and soul and knowledge into trying to be as accurate as possible, but, you know, it's a tough uh, natural system that we deal with and uh, sometimes they miss and sometimes they're right on target but their work goes on to see why they missed predicting this tornado say over this area or the landfall of a hurricane in this area and try to improve it so that's what they do and no wonder Louis Uccellini was very much complimentary of these people uh, in terms of doing their job and right. doing a superb job. I mean, they're products of some of our own universities. These are highly qualified scientists uh, uh, trying to fill that role. A veritable so, hydrometeorological remote sensing brain trust, right? Yeah, so pretty, for th- pretty, pretty much so. But, you know, there are these major universities, yes. meteorological program, Penn State's and University of Colorado's, Colorado State, uh, UCLA's. Arizona and, and where UCI. I was. Exactly. So, you know, MIT's, as I, I don't, shouldn't name all because all right. there's too many, but they all produce really outstanding scientists. So, when, you know, then, of course, this particular issue put the focus on Alabama. And, you know, no wonder the forecasters, when somebody listened, and of course, when the president talks, maybe a big part of the nation watches the news and sees it. And if I'm sitting in, you know, Huntsville, Alabama, and I'm listening to the news and they tell me, uh, well, you know, maybe it's going to come your area, then I would get concerned. So I call 
that it's very easy. They have these numbers. You can call the yes. weather service or call the emergency manager and say, hey, what should I do? Should I start worrying about this? And then they issued, I guess, a clarification, which apparently started this. It was fast, too. Yes. Well, they have to, because if you start getting calls, uh, you better react based on the knowledge, the best information you have. You have to say, well, you know what? We don't have that information that our region is going to be affected by this. Okay. So that's all they said. Okay. And which was fair. At right. The time. Right. Just let me let listeners who just tuned in, if you've tuned in, my guest is Professor Sarush Sarushian. He's the director of the Center for Hydrometeorology and Remote Sensing and professor of civil environmental engineering and earth system science departments, taking up the institutional aspects of tracking Hurricane Dorian as it moved very slowly, as it turns out pummeling the Bahamas and then approaching the southeastern USA shoreline. So I guess I just want to know if you think that, uh, I mean, availability, the immediacy of the Twitter sphere and other platforms like it are going to probably put some new kinds of pressure on what the National Weather Service or other, let's just say any kind of public agency that's fine-tuned their work and and it's it's there's no symmetry of any kind with social media that where another kind of claim could be essentially rumor mongering. The White House was a rumor mongerer. Uh, yeah, again, I I all I can say is that with new social media tweeters and others. By the way, I don't have any count on any of them. And that's my choice because uh, we have already enough. You have enough with, to do. With emails and stuff that uh, the last thing I have time to worry about ch- chasing and or posting things on Twitter. But, you know, this is the world, which a lot of positive things come out of this kind of communication, media, devices, tweeters and Facebook and you name it. But at the same time, the propagation or the spread of incorrect information also could be as fast. Okay, so the question is, maybe in the future, that would be a big challenge uh, yes. in any aspect of our life and society, is whom to listen to. Uh, you know, like, you know, you go to a supermarket, uh, they tell you to always look at the sign that says USDA choice for the meat, <laughs> because it went through some rigorous evaluation to make sure that the food is safe. Uh, that's why it's got the seal of approval of USDA. So this is really important for us to keep in mind. You know, all I can say is that it's regrettable that it has become a bigger issue than it should be. Uh, If it was a fault of somebody providing the wrong information, particularly at the day that apparently the president used that diagram to show where it was moving and maybe towards Alabama, they could have even gone to, as I said, CNN that day, you you could have seen that maybe the projections were already shifted more towards the east coast of Florida, not covering there. So maybe it was a diagram from, you know, maybe a little obsolete. Things change so quickly right. in, in half a day. Uh, what you had in the morning could be obsolete. So you just have to be prepared to keep it current. 
So I, I do want to give you a chance to talk about your center and this amazing website. But I just, from as we sort of say into that, though, are you hopeful, Dr. Sarushian, that maybe this was a blip on the screen and that we can get back to some kind of normal with executive leadership? That may, this is maybe a passing thing. Let's hope. Are you hopeful that we can get past all of this? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a person that is optimist. I always see the cup half full. But I don't know. I mean, I look at uh, these issues, even during the previous administrations, uh, there have been questions about uh, what EPA does, uh, right. what the, the Department of Energy does, what the Weather Service does, the whole world climate has become a kind of a an issue, and it was even 10 years ago, I recall, a colleague saying that he gave a talk in, in Rome after his talk was over, a couple of people approached him who were from the U.S. Embassy said, you know, you didn't say too many good things about the climate policy of the U.S. and uh, you might, your grants may suffer from this. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it's unfortunate. But, you know, of course, it was just probably a bluff. I, guess, I don't know why. So if it's, it's not a Sharpie, it's a chain getting jerked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it is... Uh, it, it it has happened. Uh, you know, it's, I know you've heard of... The hockey stick thing. Oh, of course. The, the, you know, I've talked with, with Michael Mann, Mann about exactly, that. Exactly, because I am close to that uh, group that did that wonderful research because oh. Arizona's University of Arizona's Turing Laboratory, Malcolm Hughes and others were part of that team that came up with the historical uh, data that they put together in order to get that projection. Okay. And so, yeah, Arizona, I mean, maybe Michael got, unfortunately, the brunt of the the attacks, uh, but uh, lawsuits against Malcolm Hughes and people from Arizona were hanging on over their head until not too long ago. Well, and it's not over. They're still getting hounded for uh, right, having exactly. all their emails investigating all that. But uh, I, I'm going to set that part aside because I want you to have a chance to talk a bit about the center there. It's sponsored by California Department of Water Resources, NASA, National Science Foundation, National Weather Service, NOAA, the Army Research Office, and UNESCO. And it goes on and on. And right. it's a terrific website that I want everybody to go to. I'm going to post the link well, in, in the podcast summary. And I recommend that total Ill- literates like me and the 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 literati themselves take up this wonderful resource. I can just get lost in it. There's the iRain Integrated System for Global Real-Time Observation, and then the Rain Sphere. I mean, we can find out a great deal by just getting lost in this. And I'm, in fact, I got a little kind of uh, creeped out about what I. You can start to see where the Amazon. Some indicators from some of that mapping where the Amazon is is losing its meteorological features right so because you know the the one website that you identified we call it rain sphere yes we prepared the data on the request of uh, no one that 10 years ago under the leadership of tom call who runs the national climatic data center asked us because our remote sensing algorithm has the ability to look at all the data from infrared observations yes. of satellites and it's a high resolution, relatively high resolution, uh, four kilometer. And we, we can go up to four kilometer, or the average data set we produce is 25 kilometers. They wanted us to come, go, and with the first generation of weather satellites that the U.S. ever launched, to go back, process all those images and data from those satellites, 
and come up with a climate data record. That's why it's called CDR. Okay. And our algorithm is called PERGIAN, which stands for Precipitation Estimation from Remotely Sensed Observations Using Artificial Neural Network. It's a mouthful. It is. But that's the way it is. And so we created that data. We delivered it every quarter to NOAA in Asheville. Uh, they check it. It's like, again, getting a USDA approval for meat. It's for our data set. They check and make sure that it's processed properly, and they post it. We get the data back ourselves, and thanks to Professor Fu Nguyen, uh, who is, was a student of us here and now is an adjunct faculty, a remarkable, talented young man uh, with a bunch of undergraduates from computer science. Uh, they put this website together, okay. and it's got a nice tutorial for, and our target was essentially not only scientists, but the public. Okay, I saw it. I saw us, yes. And because it makes it very easy to manipulate, you can even go and look at your region, the city or the state that you were born in and see how the climate has changed. Uh, you can get all kinds of nice information from that. And so that's our climate data record, uh, which is now up to 35 years from 1983 wow. to the present. And it's used heavily. We keep the track of the statistics of who uses our data. Exactly, I saw. Uh, and it's called the CHRS uh, statistics. You can check. You know, it shows how many people are even currently on on light on on the site to, to try to get data. We've had about almost 900,000 visitors to the site over the past six seven years. Most of it in recent years from 205 countries. I should say also we collaborate with UNESCO Yes, yes. In, in Paris, which is part of the UN, and they use our data to disseminate to all the developing countries uh, that are interested in following floods or look at the climate uh, change and impacts. Uh, so uh, that's what we try to produce, and our IRAIN, which is really the real-time rainfall, yes. if you go to the website, you'll see that. These are fast computer programs that process the data at four-kilometer resolution, giving you a picture of what we estimate to be the rainfall occurring over most of the globe. And, you know, it gets updated every 40 minutes or every so. Every 40 minutes. And can we, Dr. Sarushin, see a tropical storm building then in Precisely. the Atlantic? And, you know, there is a feature there. It says extreme events. If you click on the extreme events, it identifies the top 50 storms around the globe and for instance there is the storm the tropical storm that they say is likely to impact the u.s uh, on our website is number nine okay you can click on that under the extreme event button on the left hand side okay and then at the very bottom of it there is a little feature that you can click and put it in motion and it will show how that storm has evolved over the past 72 hours. And uh, then you can kind of guess which direction moves. You can put the path of the system. So, and there uh, is a lot of storms. Uh, if you think we are really heavily impacted, but the number one happens to be somewhere moving towards China. Right now. Exactly. Okay. Oh, wow. And that one is a major typhoon system. So this gives the ability for anybody to look at the top 50 major storms uh, impacting uh, the globe. 
Yes, our time is drawing down, and I, I mean this with all sincerity. I am not trying to be sensational, uh, and I ask this of Jay Familietti, Dr. Michael Mann, of everybody that I revere that's working on global climate factors. Are there patterns, Dr. Sarusian, that are keeping you up at night? Well, of course, uh, yes. Uh, you know, as much as I said, I'm optimistic about everything. I there's nothing on the scientific side that worries me. There's the only thing is that there's a lot of unknowns, and we deal with the natural system. We deal with planet Earth, and it's highly complex, highly nonlinear in terms of processes. And our mathematical approaches and the powers of our computers can only go that far to help us. Right. Okay, so we try, as I said, you know, people who work in the severe storm, it's remarkable that in a number of 10 to 15 years, they've been able to reduce the time of at least predicting a tornado hitting an area from 90 seconds to now almost 10 to 12 minutes. Right. I don't have the exact number for that kind of a rapidly evolving system is just remarkable. If yes. 10 minutes is enough for you to get to your house and go and take a shelter if you were still in the street. So this is what we see. The question is, can we get it down to maybe half an hour or two hours? The danger is if you try to be too ambitious with your forecast and the uncertainty goes higher, and if you miss a few times, people start not believing you. So, you know, you always are challenged uh, mm. with the real-time situations. The same goes with climate change. We have to be very careful, irrespective of what is causing it. There is no dispute that the globe is warming up, and we have to learn how to adapt and adjust to it. And, of course, the scientific evidence is strong that, you know, fossil fuels are playing a key role, and uh, when we deny it, essentially a sad that's what's sad for me how could we as you know human beings and responsible people especially if we are controlling uh, we, we can influence it as a leader of a nation or a group of nations and um, kind of dismiss it that is uh, not going to serve us that well no well, Dr. Sushin, I want to thank you so much for taking this time out of your busy schedule. I know you're getting ready for your conference in Oklahoma, and you'll thank be you. keynoting. I'm really glad we could cover this today. Thank you so much, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. My guest was Professor Sarush Sarushian, Director of the Center for Hydrometeorology and Remote Sensing and Distinguished Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering and Earth System Science Departments, taking up Hurricane Dorian that took a toll on governmental institutions as well as on the Caribbean, the eastern coastal region. We'll be right back after a station break with David Ivers, South Coast Repertory's artistic director with quite the season already underway. Don't go away. We'll be right back. All right, I got the weather reports. Track Birdland, a classic. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is David Ivers, South Coast Repertory's Artistic Director, appointed this last March. 
He's covered the classics, contemporary works, and new plays, and now he's doing it right here with The Rep. A little bit about David Ivers. Prior to his appointment at South Coast Repertoire, he was artistic director for the Arizona Theater Company. Before that, he served as an actor and director at Utah Shakespeare Festival, leading up to his last role there as artistic director. He was a resident artist at Denver Center Theater Company and has helmed productions at the Guthrie Theater, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Berkeley Repertory Theater, and South Coast Repertory. He taught at the University of Michigan, University of Minnesota, Southern Utah University, and Southern Oregon University. A product of the San Fernando Valley area, David Ivers completed his Bachelor's of Fine Arts from Southern Oregon University and his Master's of Fine Arts from the University of Minnesota. He's starting the season strong there at the Rep with American Mariachi, now playing until October 5th. He comes to us today from his Costa Mesa office there at the Sagerstrom Performing Arts Center. Welcome to Ask a Leader, and welcome back to Southern California, David Ivers. Thank you. I don't know who that guy is you were just talking uh, about. That, no, that that's you. You know that. You've, <laughs> you've seen that bio. Thank you for, and thanks for everybody for sending me the bio. Well, David, as artistic director, what is the nature of your work with playwrights? You could perhaps break down what that is all about, Love the Dance. Uh, sure. Well, specific to playwrights, uh, I mean, that's one component of the job. The specific work with playwrights at the moment uh, is mostly, I would say, most of the time as it intersects with new plays, which is sort of the cornerstone and touchstone about, of much of what makes um, SCR, uh, I think, a powerful institution. We certainly do plays where we're, that are extant plays that are, where we're not in touch with the playwright because maybe the play's been produced a lot or the playwright isn't alive, but right now we're working on a ton of contact with playwrights because we have a, an active commission list of new writers that are over 50 writers strong, right? So all that work is being developed to get us to a draft point for SCR to consider uh, one of their new plays. We have four in this current season. We're right now Adam Bach, who wrote The Canadians, which is sort of up next here in the the building. Uh And, And so we do a lot of work in nurturing the play. And in nurturing the play, we also hope to nurture the playwright. And the playwright often nurtures us as well. So that dance is a dance in, in many ways about, okay, here's a writer we're really interested in. First thing we have to do mostly, of course, is contact their agent. <laughs> so we first have to be competitive in terms of what we might have to offer, both financially but perhaps more so in, forgive the term, the muscle of how we might support developing a play. And for a playwright, I think it's different. They'll tell you one playwright might want to be in a room and have a bunch of actors to work with to hear their play, another playwright might say, actually, that's not useful to me. I need to be locked in a room alone somewhere other than where I live for a week. Can you support that? Which we try to say yes to. And other playwrights, I think, will say, I really want an audience. I need to hear it through the eyes of and the ears of other people. Uh, and so that dance is individualized, and I think that's what makes South Coast Rep so incredibly powerful and why it's so humbling to have been appointed is that we really have the ability and the desire to support our writers in ways that other institutions don't always have uh, the ability to do. 
Well, I can honestly say that vibe, it's building. You can, it's a palpable vibe as one sort of enters that sphere of the rep. So it's um, that dance is really, um, it's kicking up a lot of dust. It's kicking, oh, good, so, good. Well, it's kind of exciting times around here right now. Absolutely. We're, we're having and a good time. Uh, a lot of stuff's coming together. A lot of stuff. So let's talk about your season. Let's talk. Let's give a review what's on the roster. And I want to stay on this side of the new year because there's so many plays to yeah, talk about. So for the whole year, so maybe you will will just keep this invitation standing that you come back and talk about what will be happening in 2020 when we get to that later date. So one of the kind of refrains here is the theme about what the world really looks like. What themes are you, David, trying to strike with your, there's the American mariachi we're going to talk about, the Canadians and aubergine. Well, yeah, I mean, I will say that overriding any sort of thematic structure really is fundamentally my belief that we want to be producing well-made plays, right? So that's really the most important thing to start, is that we actually have material and work that does a lot for our community and speaks to a lot of people and represents the world and how we are, but fundamentally is also a good product, you know, and we believe that we can help develop that product. So, yeah, it's by no mistake in a, that American Mariachi is opening the season a playwright, Jose Cruz Gonzalez, who I've worked with before, who I admire a great deal, who uh, is a friend, but more than that, who has written a play that I believe speaks to the community in which we live in all of its forms. So it's a beautiful play. It's a kind of coming of age story. It's a sort of, you know, bad news bears triumphant story about these young women in the 70s in California from a Mexican-American family who band together and in order to bring their loved one, a mother, aunt, out of the throes of dementia, they create a mariachi band uh, against tradition because they have to learn for a variety of reasons, well, actually for one reason, a song that brings their loved one to the present. And so this is a play that, in addition to having all sorts of connections to our community culturally, it also has connections to our community for our loved ones who are suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's, and that the, the role that music plays in bringing people to the present who are suffering for those things. Well, and there's um, a lot of redemption themes, too, with, the, the, as you said, coming of age. There's a lot of characters that are finding their way in this. And I, yeah. you have some background. You said you worked with Jose Cruz Gonzalez, the, the playwright, and you had worked on this play before. This is some of it's the Arizona theater you were at. Um, I yeah. just, I want you to, t- maybe you could say a little bit about what the audience response was like, maybe if there's any difference between those audiences in here and and actually and I want to know what was your first mariachi experience well my yeah great <laughs> question so the audiences are inherently different but yeah. the response is not really much different it's a, such a huge celebration I'm so thrilled to see some of the barriers being broken down here in our audience reflecting many parts of our community um, and and it's really exciting we, we are throwing tons of community engagement initiatives with our production of American Mariachi. There are community groups and professional groups of mariachi musicians from ages eight on up outside playing before the show and the after whole, the show. The whole run. We uh, were treated to it Sunday for sure. So there's a whole yeah. schedule, a whole roster of performers to get everybody up and running for the actual play. 
Yeah, and also for our community to see themselves in the work we produce, right? Yes. For, this to be, for our campus to be a, a place for discourse and joy. And I think if there's any overriding theme in the season for me as my first season, it's optimism and joy and the indomitable human spirit. It feels like a very good time in our world to be celebrating the individual and the triumphant sort of spirit that we all carry with us if we, have, if we hold belief, you know? Right. And that's very important to me as a father. It's very important to me as an artistic director. It's very important to me simply as a human being uh, who has to walk through the day uh, being bombarded with reasons to, I think, you know, be uh, cynical, <laughs> you know? Right. So, Why not be know, authentic I, instead? Yeah. Yeah. And so, <laughs> That's what mariachi you know, we paired American Mariachi opening right next to it in the Arduous is a world premiere by Adam Bach, who's a prolific American playwright, never been produced, actually a Canadian-American playwright, never been produced. Uh, at, at South Coast Rap, he and I share the joy of being dual citizens of Canada, okay. and this country, and I love the idea that American Mariachi is opening next to the Canadians. That is a beautiful, beautiful story, another coming-of-age story about finding yourself in the midst of seemingly impossible and unaccepting environments that actually turns out to be not the case. So, you know, there's it's set in a small, what we might perceive as a small distance, and uh, I don't know, isolated town in Port Allison, uh, Manitoba. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's surrounded by horrible weather, inter-office politics in the the mayor's office, and on a hockey team of which our two heroic characters are on, Bobby and Gordy, that hockey team. And uh, it it turns out that they have the opportunity to go on a male cruise. And in their relationship through the lens of where they are, that's a whole different world for them. And they find love. And each other beyond the friendship, and and it's a it's a another lens of who we are, and who we celebrate in our world. Um, in in wrapped inside a righteously funny, non-editorial comedy. You know, oh, that sounds uh, all right. That that holds universal truths, and uh, that that's coming up. And then Julia Cho has written an absolutely stunning play called Aubergine. Julia Cho has a long relationship with. South Coast Rep. She has written a play about a Korean-American family who have to deal with what it means to face uh, end-of-life scenario for a loved one. And in through humor and food and tradition, the people that wrap themselves around the, the father in the play who's moving on and ending life because of illness, they find themselves in ways that are deeply profound. It's actually one of those sort of sounds like a sad story but it's incredibly uplifting and moving and also finds its universal truth uh in in the lens of perhaps a culture we don't always see it and always exciting to have a play where there's cooking and celebrates um interesting food inside of it i think so wow um, those are the first three out of the gate representing a kind of quilt of who we are i believe but all as I said, with a kind of optimism and a kind of spirit that help lift us, and I believe in in return with our community engagement after efforts around each of these productions will lift the organization. You know, right? And you blasted through with them so fast and so vigorously. I'd like to just give everybody a chance to sort of set their dials here. That the American Mariachi is now being performed, and it will go till October 5th. And maybe we should also mention that Christopher Acebo is the director, and he has a kind of a piece of this. He, he uh, sort of 
assumed a kind of a, a mariachi hobby, and so it's something. It's a it's running through his his own development, and then the Canadians is that's a world premiere. I think you said that, and that's yeah, yeah. going to be starting on September 29th and run till October 20th. The Canadians director is Hemi Castaneda, so that's that sounds like we've got the whole North American continent going on there. Exactly, and then NAFTA season, and then NAFTA show, and and then Aubergine by that we were talking. About that's going to be directed by uh, is being directed by Lisa Peterson. It will begin October nineteenth and run until November sixteenth. So it, it's quite remarkable. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is David Ivers. He's the new South Coast Repertory Artistic Director, and what a season they have! I wanted just to bring up the the matter of representation. Representation, it's a big deal. It was brought up when there was this very august forum hosted by the Asian American Pacific Island Community Action Summit a couple of weeks right yeah. right yeah. nearby your office. Then they they raised this whole idea about representation in how whether there are the creative elements and the all the elements in a production, whether they are representing adequately, authentically, the ethnicities about which those roles are. So how central is that to your decisions in selecting plays and casting and staffing? What kinds of standards do you have there? I think it's it's 2019. We have high standards. We have standards that, that what we do over time, uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of listening and I'm doing a lot of um, kind of looking in every corner of the organization, and over time we build an organization on stage, backstage, everywhere that starts to reflect the world we live in. Right? I'm right. I am a I am a 50 year old, six foot five, white dude uh, that people make assumptions about, and they should. And my story of my face has been told a ton. Right? Now mm-hmm. people not may not know this, but by looking at me, uh, that's fine. They shouldn't. But I'm first generation American. My parents. Are not they were not born here, you know? Uh, although I'm sure there's many people that look at me and think, "Oh, there's an all-American guy," you know. But you're Canadian. But the reality, well, uh, English and Canadian. Okay. So my father, uh, actually, not, uh, not even Canadian. I mean, my father emigrated to Canada, but they were part of the Polish Jewish community, uh, and so you know, there's tentacles uh, across the world on on that side, you know. Okay. But more importantly, the work that we do on stage. Yeah. Uh, has to reek of excellence, right? And I believe that we can reek of excellence. It sounds like a, an odd term to use. No, but, not at all. But it has to reek of excellence and virtuosity, and inclusive in that excellence and virtuosity, it also has to accurately represent who we are and where we live uh, in this country and beyond. So that means a panoply and a kaleidoscope of existences and cultures and lenses. And we do talk about it, and it is, it is part of a conversation. And as I said early on, the first thing is to find excellence in the work, right? That is the first priority. And then I think we can do both, you know? I think we can have excellence and also represent fairly the integrity of um, who we are. Uh, and so that extends to all corners of the institution, I believe. And it takes time, and it will continue to take time. But I'm very proud of what's happening this season, and I think people uh, across our communities will find places to see themselves authentically in our work, and that's thrilling, you know? So taking the who we are refrain and looking at 
what kind of audiences that you're trying to reach, David? Who are you trying to include? Well, at the moment, we're try- I mean, we're opening the doors to include where we live, right? Okay. So where, where we live in California is, is a vast and rich, like, you know, sort of quilt of people. And this is a very uh, interesting location we're in here. It's sort of bunkered by South Coast Plaza and the yeah. Pearson Center for the Arts. Fair enough. Hotels. Yeah, and it's, it, is, um, it is exciting and beautiful, but it also has some privilege to it, right? And so we, we have to break that down a bit and be, extend open arms into partnerships and provide access for people that may or may not be able to afford to be here. So I'm, tr- I'm trying to reach, at the moment, it sounds overly generalized, anybody that wants to be deeply connected to the art and ritual of sitting in a room and hearing and seeing stories. And my hope is that people will see and hear occasionally or, or frequently their stories. So I just personally signed 1,600 letters to LAP subscribers. So that's one, that's one group I'm trying to reach. Um, I'm trying okay. to reach uh, kids. So I'm out speaking you know, at my kid's school. Um, we're going to the Rotary Club, Paula and I, to talk to the Rotary Club. Paula we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're, you know, we, we are expanding our efforts in every way to say, South Coast Rep has something for you, and we would like to open a conversation. We're, part, we're, we're looking at partnerships with Santa Ana Unified School District. We're looking at partnerships with community centers. We're about to have a uh, LBGTQ celebration around the Canadians. All that is aimed at first creating meaningful partnerships. The byproduct of that meaningful partnership will be a more developed, full, fully developed audience. It is not the mission, because that is transactional. So I, I just want to add to that. Actually, an educator at the Santa Ana High School had a really, uh, a couple of really interesting observations about how the students that were already they were they were prepared. They knew they knew a particular play that was being performed, and they were sort of they were very very with the performers. That there might have been some like a memory issue, a lapse or something, some kind of delivery. But they were so they were so with that character. They were so in the play that they were you know helping carry that and that there was a pride in their uh, there was a part of their participating in some aspect of what was being staged around the rep and i i'm sorry i don't have the exact anecdote set up but that there is a connection that has been forged with that that very school system that you're talking about so i guess i'm i've got sort of a little lightning round of things i want to quickly wrap with that the navigating peer entertainment versus uh, some, you know, harder work. What What is your goal with putting audiences, putting donors to work besides just having a nice time? Uh, well, th- th- we, we got to put donors to work, you know, hopefully, hopefully they're looking at it as not work, but a labor of love, you know, that, and, and that's part of our process is, is igniting people behind vision, our donors and our community, right? right? Because then we're bound together by a common goal, which is how do we lift SCR, which is a place that sits above us all and we serve. And Paula and I are managing director who I just adore. Okay. And I love working with. She and I talk about it a lot, that there's three letters, three words above our names, and that's what we serve, right? And the goal is to sort of cheerlead in kind of passionate belief about who we are. And then the work of donors becomes, and our board becomes easier, becomes a labor of love and a passion for them as well. 
at the end of the day, Paul and I have to set that vision. Here are the goals. Here's the context. Here's what we want to reach for, of which you mentioned one, developing audiences more fully as part of it, becoming more engaged with community. That's another component. And how do we do those things? And, and how do we create initiatives? For instance, what's happening on the patio right now? That's one of them. That's right. got to be funded at some point because it's, a, it's, it's, it's another budget line, like a production. But it's an important one because it means that we're giving back to community. Our hand isn't out just asking. We're actually trying to find avenues and ways that our community can be visible and the work they, they do. So as we start to set vision, which we're working on now, I think, I think the hope is, and it's starting to happen, is that the board and donors will start to look at it and see this impact is great. And I think SCR had that in the early days yes. in ways that no other theater did. And because of the way that long-term organizations evolve, it's just that's receded a bit, and that's totally okay. Because the DNA of it's still here, and it's up to me now as one of the new leaders of the organization to get out the brass cleaner and polish it up and figure out ways we become as bright and shiny as we were before. Absolutely. And so just the last question in the shortest, shortest stroke, and I don't mean to uh, to ding you with this open-ended question with so little time left. Let's say you had unlimited funds. What would you do? I would send transportation to every underserved community and all of our constituencies that have a desire to see live theater, and they would never have to worry about paying for it or getting here or getting home. Wow, good answer. <laughs> well, I want to thank you, David Ivers, for being on the, the show today. I want to thank you. It's thrilling to talk with you, and I appreciate all the work and the, the wonderful stories you're helping to to illuminate uh, in your work. So well, thanks. thank you very much. My guest was David Ivers, South Coast Repertory's Artistic Director, as the rep begins its new season. Well, that was my wrap. After um, I'm going to close with the reminder, folks, that activities are slated for this Friday, September 20th, as the, all the world observes the climate strike. Choices are right here in Irvine at 10 a.m. at Culver and Alton Parkway. And uh, next week, I'll have on Dennis Pedersen, He's the director of the SBR Port Authority in Denmark about their green economy with their thriving windmill enterprise over this last decade. And in the second segment, Linda Fox, president of the Long Beach chapter of the National Council of Jewish Women with all their latest advocacy projects. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. What is that? Y si los muertos han...